You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome, everyone, to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Chad Sanderson. For those of us that don't have time to listen to the entire episode, please feel free to check us out at b2brevexec.com. Or, of course, hit us up on iTunes, where a review is always greatly appreciated. Today, we are lucky to have with us Juliana Sly. She's CEO and Chief Strategist with a company called Government Business Results that focuses on go-to-market strategy and enablement for technology firms focused on selling to the public sector. This can be a great conversation, considering a lot of our guests at this point, of course, have been focused on private. So we're looking forward to her perspectives on this. She has a long history of selling into the public sector with executive positions at Autodesk, Adobe, and SGI. Uh, so Juliana, we're extremely excited to have you on the show today. I really appreciate the time. Thanks, Chad. It's really great to be here. You know, from my perspective, I think your podcasts deliver a really unique perspective that adds a lot of value for the marketing and selling community. And so I'm just thrilled to be able to participate. Excellent. Well, I'm going to use this um, with a lot of our prospects that are focused on public sector. So for me, it is also extremely valuable. So again, I will <laughs> bow down and thank you for your time. Uh, normally on these podcasts, we like to front load the value. We'll do some of the normal types of questioning stuff. But one of the things I like to ask our guests, especially considered typically higher level executives, you know, experienced professionals, is is there was there a defining moment in your career when you look back that kind of either changed the course of your career or Uh, provided you with some inspiration. If you could kind of share that with our guests and explain what that was, I'd love to start there. What a great question. You know, interestingly enough, when we see, when we think about a defining moment, it's that aha, right? Where kind of like the clouds part and the sun shines down and it's typically (laughs) seen as this, this benign moment, you know, that, that adds a lot to your life. My defining moment is one of failure. I think, you know, we can soften it a little bit by calling it, I failed forward. (laughs) (laughs) But the reality is it was, it was, it wasn't just a little failure. It was a pretty monster failure. I was in my late twenties. And at the time I was responsible for uh, driving military simulation and training growth for a little tiny company called Silicon Graphics, who, if, if you know who Silicon Graphics or SGI are, In their heyday, they transformed gaming, virtual reality, Hollywood special effects, and military training and simulation. They had these these graphics supercomputers that were just programmed to screen cutting-edge graphics technology and capabilities. So if you remember Jurassic Park, that was all done on the SGIs. And so my job was to take their hardware and some of their software and position it towards the military training and simulation industry and drive revenue and growth there. And I'm looking out across everything and it's, you know, it's the late 90s, early 2000s and PCs were coming on, (laughs) as was the commoditization of the graphics card. And I decided, you know what? Absolutely, that's the direction we should be going in. I know we make multi-million dollar machines here at SGI, but we really need to make a low cost entry, um, a product called a PC graphics cluster. And SGI is going to be the one to pioneer it because who knows more about graphics than Silicon Graphics, right? <laughs> right. So, so I was, I was headstrong into this and I knew exactly what I was doing, except I didn't. So <laughs> SGI had no idea how to make a high end or how, how to make a low end commodity piece of hardware. Everything they had done had been high touch, almost a manual assembly 
of these supercomputers. And here I was trying to get them to build a low-cost PC graphics cluster. And at the end of the day, not only was SGI not prepared to produce these things, but the military training and simulation in industry wasn't prepared to buy them. They looked at SGI as a very high-end provider of hardware, and they kept looking at it, this, this PC graphics cluster going, hang on a minute, everything about this is a compromise. And my response, well, what about it is a compromise? It's medium-grade graphics technology available for the low, low price of $26,000 per PC. Who <laughs> right. wouldn't want to pay that? By the time it was all said and done, that was the cheapest I could get SGI to manufacture this product. And that was cost, wow. <laughs> but the company had let me proceed down this path. And I think, you know, it was, I had so much energy and so much vision around it that they, they got behind my passion and my energy and allowed me to drive this forward. And at the end of the day, you know, my perspective at the time was, oh, it's the next big wave. I know we were totally dead on for what we were going to do, but I was asking Mercedes Benz to build a Yugo and <laughs> okay. the customers, didn't want to buy a Yugo from Mercedes-Benz. What the customers wanted was the quality that they and, and the cutting edge capability that they had expected from Silicon Graphics. And so I think we sold one. <laughs> the entire line was shut down six months later. And it was a failure. And it was it wasn't just a little tiny failure, right? Because when you spin up a big product inside of a company, it all hangs on your back. But at the end of the day, you know, I feel like I failed my customers, I failed my company, I failed my division, I failed everybody. <laughs> and I, I thought for sure this is it, this is the end of my career. I'm going to go down in flames over a $26,000 PC graphics cluster. Well, and SGI um, was the it, I mean, for a while there, SGI was the it company. I remember, I mean, very clearly remember what SGI was bringing to market, and they were known for you know, the big solution. It was, they were not a, a, a low-end player at all. So even to have SGI be willing to invest in you, I mean, that's a huge vote of confidence, win or fail, you know, it still is a huge it, well, vote of confidence. Well, it was a tremendous vote of confidence, but, but check it out. I was going after a segment of the market that Silicon Graphics didn't own that I thought would be highly valuable to own. And I was ignoring a bunch of very important things along the way. I was ignoring the SGI brand. I was ignoring what the company itself was good at. I was ignoring what my customers really wanted. And I was convinced that I had the answer. And so my big aha and what really shaped my, my, my life moving forward and my professional growth were actually two things. One, it's not about me. It's, it's not about what I know or what I think or where I believe the market is headed. It's really all about the customer right. because at the end of the day, if the customer doesn't want it and it's not positioned in a way to drive value for what the customer, where the customer wants to go, it's not going to happen. Right. So that was, that was my aha. Number one, my second aha was you can't go against your DNA. You have to take that DNA, whatever form it's in, whether it's personal DNA or professional DNA and make it work for you. Your listeners aren't going to necessarily know this, but I'm six foot four. And so as a tall woman, especially growing up, you have to figure out pretty quickly how to make your DNA work for you. Because right. either you own the height or it owns you. Right. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but you extend this into kind of what I learned with Silicon Graphics, and it really comes down to they were a high-end graphics manufacturer. That was their pedigree, that's their DNA, that's what they knew how to do, and that's what they were known for. So it was about taking that 
and making it work for us, not filling some gap that I perceived because they weren't a low-end player. And, and again, th those two pieces of, of, of knowledge have kind of stuck with me all the way through to what I do today. And the work that we do today is helping companies translate their value proposition on the commercial side and extend it into government and public sector. And along the way, I'm very careful to remember that I can't transform this company's DNA. I can extend it. I can match the value for the DNA against what the customer needs within the public sector are, but I can't change it and I can't alter it. So I keep that pretty sacrosanct. And then the other piece is, is I really strive to come at it from the customer's perspective. And the public sector is, is rather brutal and unforgiving if you don't. Um, <laughs> and so th those two lessons sort of guide me today. Well, and, and so that's that's great, actually, segue. So SGI was public sector stuff. How did you get into public sector? Was it by design? Did you always know growing up you wanted to go into public sector? Or how did that come about? No, I'm, I'm from a military family. Oh, okay. um, my family is full of um, uh, military and nurses. So we were born to serve in one capacity or another. A military <laughs> nurses and teachers, actually. <laughs> so we're born to serve in one aspect or another. Um, but... I think like everything in life, all of the great journeys begin with a single step that just sort of feels good. And for me, I answered an ad in a local DC Metro paper for a technology reseller that was looking for some marketing help. And once I got into it and realized where they were focused within government, I was hooked. I was completely hooked. I mean, from my perspective, there is no other industry that is more challenging, more compelling, and more risk-reward laden than working <laughs> within the public sector. And so once for me, I got a taste of really being able to drive and manipulate business and growth in the public sector, I was hooked. And that, that's sort of all she wrote in that area. And so when we talk about, you mentioned before, you know, understand it from the customer's perspective and that type of stuff. We talk about that a lot with a lot of our clients. I'm curious, have you seen there be, I mean, it's a pretty simple concept, right? But also very difficult at times for some people to grasp and put into practice. So I'm curious from a public sector standpoint, how you go about working with companies to say, hey, you really need to see this from the from the angle of the DOD or you know entities of that size, or is it really about that particular buyer or individual that you're trying to uncover the value from? You know, it's interesting. I have found that a company's ability to really quote unquote get it in terms of what the public sector is about and driving revenue there directly relates to how deeply they've invested and committed to verticalization in general and and to their ability to be customer centric uh, because i think if you if you look at the scale of being customer centric on the one hand you know you've got truly company centric ideology on the right hand side of the spectrum right. on the left hand side is truly customer centric and that's where public sector lives. Out of all of the verticals, it is the most extreme in demanding a customer-centric capability. So for companies who are really far to the right and they're still sort of self-absorbed, let's call it, what I say to them in the way that I explain it is the public sector in and of itself isn't just about using a certain type of terminology or language. It's not about translation. I can translate something from English into Spanish, but public sector is about localization where you have to pay attention to culture and business practices. And so I will typically walk companies through that discussion of what it means to pay attention to the public sector culture, the public sector business practices, and of course the public sector language because it all wraps together. And 
you know, usually, usually they'll understand. A lot of times they'll kind of nod their heads and go, <laughs> I hear the words that are coming out of your mouth. <laughs> yeah. I really don't know how to interpret that to what we do. And then, then we go down the path of showing them how to, how to actually execute that within their organization structure. And so is that kind of, you know, the genesis for government business results was that, I mean, after years of, of selling to the public sector or marketing the public sector, the, the genesis for, for opening your doors as, as an entity focused on that kind of thing, where'd that come from? You know, it's interesting. I, so I've gone through my life. I've managed uh, global government industries for folks like, you know, Macromedia, Adobe, Autodesk, the companies that you identified earlier. And it was in two, it was in 2010. And I decided to take a step out of working for a mainstream company and spend a little time focusing at the time with my new emerging family. And then I was thinking about picking up a new position in the fall. As I went through the summer, you know, and started to look at my bank account, <laughs> I decided I got to get serious about this whole new position thing. I started to talk to a colleague of mine who said, you know what, Jules, at the end of the day, if you want to go dock in somewhere, I'll help you dock in. And this person had known me for about 15 years. He said, but I know what you're good at and I know companies need what you do. And it's been something I'd heard over the course of my career. Oh, we wish we'd had something, somebody like you, or wow, you know, your team really produces results. We wish we had that. And the whole time in the back of my head, I'm thinking, oh, what a nice compliment and nothing more than that. But when I hung out my shingle in, in the fall of 2010, I thought, you know, I'll pick up a couple of gigs. It'll be kind of a nice business. We became overwhelmed and saturated almost out of the gate. And what I realized was this idea of really driving a specific industry with embedded institutional knowledge of how to run that industry is lacking in the technology sector. You'll find folks who, who make great industry marketing managers because they know how to spin a word, but moving beyond that and developing the structures, the programs, and the content that actually accelerate revenue, that's almost become a dying art. And so what we have found over the course of standing up GBR is there are actually a lot of companies out there who have who really need what we refer to as industry support as a service uh, in, in the way where we can kind of dock into their existing infrastructure and provide a level of services that are almost white labeled. So the companies that you see and, and talk with today in the public sector, there's a good chance that somewhere along their pipeline, either their strategy, their messaging or their content was uh, approached or, or or massaged in some way by either GBR or somebody who's who's related to GBR in some way. Interesting. So, you know, when you talk about technology companies, uh, everybody knows the big brands, right? So Adobe, Google, those types of things. But and you know that they have great expertise and put a lot of money behind mm -hmm. you know, going B to C, uh, going to consumers that that get that. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious if you had, if you could identify like three, the top three things that a marketer who's really accomplished in a non-verticalized tech space uh, would need to be aware of in order to kind of make that transition to being effective at public sector marketing. What would the, what would those top three things be? You know, and I'll say both from the marketing and the sales component, it's a, it's a couple of things. The first is you have got to listen and it's about listening to really understand the culture that I talked about earlier, as well as the dynamics that are in play, not just inside of the general public sector, but inside each of the segments, DOD, state and local, IC, healthcare, and education. Every single one of those components has 
a very different uh, rhythm and heartbeat for how they drive business and, and different sets of, of needs. And in, in that way, it's, it's no different than really listening to a customer's needs in general, right? You can genericize to a point, but you become far more effective if you're able to truly listen and, and zero in. So, so that's the first thing. I think the second thing is that you've got to put, your sh- you've got to put yourself in their shoes. You have to be able to understand their immediate pain points, and it's not always obvious, and it's not always what the market's going to tell you it's going to be. As I mentioned, that each one of the different segments have their 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 different issues and challenges. I find that each one of uh, the customers that we talk to have their different pain points within that as well. And then the third component, I would say, realistically, is that you can't think of the public sector as a vertical. You need to think of it as a horizontal. And what I mean by that is for every single quote unquote vertical that you can find in the commercial space, you'll find it in public sector. So you'll find healthcare in public sector. You'll find manufacturing in public sector. You'll find utilities in public sector. You'll find transportation in public sector. And so to really kind of think about the public sector as another horizontal market or a vertical of verticals, if you will. So interesting. So it becomes, uh, I mean, I've, I've done some, just a very little bit of selling into the public sector, right? And there's all of the, uh, how do I say this nicely, the stereotypes for selling to the public sector, right? Takes forever, uh, a lot of bureaucratic red tape. I'm curious, when you look at it as its own entity, do you run into challenges with those tech companies who may be used to other verticals or the, or the normal horizontal and then going after the public sector? Do they have their own internal cultural challenges? Because that's a, I mean, it's a pretty big shift that you're talking mm. about. So I'm curious how their own internal cultures impact their ability to be successful. You know, it, it impacts them in a variety of different ways. Uh, again, it comes down to how dedicated the company is to truly focusing on their customer. And that describes whether or not they're going to have an easier time adapting to marketing and selling into the public sector or not. When I'm helping a company to establish the proficiency though and really kind of begin to make the changes. The challenges that we see are more often around the, oh gosh, how do I say this? Um, It's a struggle for companies to want to provide one vertical something that they're not providing the other verticals. In other words, you know, companies will often see their verticals as their children and they all need to get equal resourcing and they all need to get equal support uh, with the exception of the fact that the public sector is different. And that's a very challenging obstacle for many companies to overcome. There is a sales specialty. There is, beyond sales and marketing, there's an operational need. There's a contracts need. There's a legal need. It truly is its own little ecosystem that gets spun up. And you have to provide, you know, not only do you have to provide differentiated resources, but there is a significant upfront investment that in some cases may take years to recoup in terms of an ROI. And both of those things, both the upfront investment and and the disproportionate nature of the investment compared to the other verticals, as well as the ROI timeframe tend to be very challenging for tech companies. Well, usually they I'm, want it all. They want it now, and they want it in thirty, sixty, ninety days. <laughs> right. Well, and that's the way. I mean, that's the way they kind of go to market. It's the way Wall Street's, you know, kind of trained them. My, my experience with government sector was those were extremely, you know, lucrative if you could win. Mm-hmm. But it was a huge amount. I mean, I man, I ended up going door to door helping a lobbyist one time. So I mean, it, it takes a very long time, and that type of investment is almost. 
it is, I don't know if it's the other side of the coin or does it create friction with like the other sales teams and marketing teams that are moving at a faster pace? Does that timeline itself create challenges? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny. I have one client who talks quite a bit about wanting, wanting to create something called linearity in the sales program. And so what they're looking for across the board from their commercial sector is that you wind up with, it's the flattening of the hockey stick, right? So you spread out revenue so that in month one of the quarter, you're achieving a 30 to 40% of your revenue, month two, 30 to 40%, month three, you know, 25 to 30% or, or some level of flattening. And all of that, there's a lot that public sector reps can do to manage and drive their revenue in a cadence that aligns well with the company they're working with. But you can't change the laws of the federal fiscal year. You just can't. There's nothing that a rep can do to change the fact that the government is going to spend a lot of money between August and September, August 1st and September 30th. So you can flatten it as much as you want, but you're still going to get that massive hockey stick on September 30th. And, and the, you know, the, the big tail that comes in the November, December, January timeframe. So it is challenging for these technology companies and, and the traditionally private sector companies to understand that there are some things that are out of their control. And then, you know, then you have things like continuing resolution where all bets are off because they've just stopped spending. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's really hard to be that sales rep who goes, I have a $1.2 million deal in the pipeline and the federal government just shut down. <laughs> yeah. Know? There, yeah. there it, it's, but that, so we go back to what I talked about earlier. I thrive for that kind of challenge. The creativity that is born of repeatedly driving revenue in that kind of a space is, is really, you know, to me, it's intriguing and it's compelling. But for technology companies, what they see often at the managerial level is, okay, I've got a team telling me that this is different. They need more. It's going to be longer till I get the ROI. And I look at all of that and go, I don't know if we want to be a part of this business, or I don't know if we can sustain a commitment at the level you're asking us to sustain a commitment without the ROI and you know everything else that you're going against the grain with. And so those are some of the challenges that I typically have to deal with as well. So do you do you find yourself, you know, you've been doing this a while, you're obviously an expert at it and you've got your own concern going, your own business, GBR is up and running, being very successful. Do you find yourself in the enviable situation of being able to look at customers and assess kind of their level of commitment and say, yeah, yay or nay. No, we don't want to do business with these guys because they're not there. Like, What's your kind of your, your own education portion of your own sales cycle when you look at customers who come to you and look for help? Are there those that fit the bill and those that you know just aren't ready? Yeah. And, and, and it, it's very interesting. You know, I, I started my, I'll, I'll step back a little bit by saying I started my business simply because I really enjoy what I do. And I think you hear it in my voice. It's, yep, I, not I, a doubt. I pleasure in what I do. And so this whole idea of managing my own sales cycle from time to time catches me a little bit going, oh, hang on, I actually, I, I got to take a look at my pipeline and manage my sales cycle. So, you know, and it's the cobbler's kids, right? Have, have no shoes. So I look at it and go, okay, yeah, you know, are we in a position to turn away business? We are, but we don't. And I look at it from the standpoint that when folks come to us, it's because they have a need. And, you know, there are two things that fuel me. It's helping someone in need. And I think that's part of my family's commitment to service. You know, you find service in a variety of different ways. But the other piece is I'm truly intrigued because every 
problem is slightly different. You can have certain categories of problems and I can look at a customer and go, or a client and go, you know what, we're gonna go through this. It's gonna cost them a bunch of money and a bunch of time. And at the end of the day, they're going to struggle with really how they implement it. And I, I can have that sense going into the conversation. But what I find is that little bit of spidey sense makes me work that much harder to help whatever it is that I create or consult with them on work for them so that they can perpetuate it so that they can implement it. And that's the way I, I typically look at those scenarios. Yeah, it's it's always fun to find the next, uh, I think my wife refers to it as my puzzle problem. Like I need the, the mm-hmm. next puzzle, right? That's the beautiful thing about professional services. Every client has a different perspective or a different yeah. or a different cultural challenge. Uh, so I can completely understand where you're coming from. Uh, mm-hmm. I do have some customers, I'll be honest, where I've looked back and said, yeah, maybe I should have <laughs> not gone down that path. But I think everybody lives and learns that as they go through. Um, I'm yeah, curious. Isn't that great? Even in those customers, that that customer segment learned from you during that engagement, and you learned from them. Oh, without and a doubt. I think you walk away. Both parties walk away richer for it. This is true. This is true. Very good. I, I, my my wife would say that you uh, you see the glass half full, and I'm annoyed that the mm-hmm. glass is on the table. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, I totally understand where you're, where you're coming from. I'm curious, and we've talked about this a little bit in the past. The the difference between uh, sales professionals uh, in the private sector versus public sector when you encounter companies that are, you know, they have a well-developed, perhaps, a, you know, it's a proven private sector sales team. When they start to go build that public sector team, you know, what are the differences that they need to be aware of? What types of, of people and personalities should they be looking for? Yeah, no, great question. So I, I typically start off by saying, all right, if you're going to go hire somebody who is, and, 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 we're talking about a company hiring somebody in the private sector to work in the public sector. Sure. Or we, okay. So let's start there. So companies will often say, well, I can just take one of my top selling commercial reps and turn them into a good public sector rep. And I go, if you have five years for them to get there, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And I typically get this cross-eyed look and I'm like, and, and my response is typically along the lines of in order to become a highly skilled public sector rep, you need to understand the budget cycles and to have lived through at least three of them or four of them, at which point you're looking at three to four years because there is a continuity that's involved. There's understanding the system and the structure and how the money flows. And then you have to learn how to manipulate and drive that spend in a sales capacity. And I know it sounds you know, challenging if I say the words manipulating government spend, but the reality is... <laughs> It's a sales process as we go through it. And and there is a certain level of management of expectations that you have to go through, both on the customer side and within your own own company side. So I'll I'll start there. But then the second thing that I I typically look at, and this is, if if you're going to bring to me a public sector rep and say, is this candidate good for my company? I'm going to advise them to look for a couple of things. The first thing is, they ask me, well, they've only worked for this company for a year and that company for two years, and is that a problem? And increasingly with the millennial workforce, you see that type of job hop. And so I I don't get as concerned about that as I previously did. I will tell you where I focus with public sector instead, and that is their time in segment. How long have they been driving business inside of federal civilian agencies? 
or how long have they been driving business within the DOD? If you see them hopping back and forth between FedCiv and DOD, a little bit of commercial over here, back into FedCiv, I start to see red flags because within the public sector, it is such a relationship-driven segment that what you want in an ideal sales hire is someone who can bring to the table solid sales skills and a deep understanding of the customer as well as relationships within agencies and knowledge of how agencies acquire. And you get that by sales reps who have spent time in segment. And so that's what I would encourage hiring managers to look for. So time in the barrel, right? Time in the barrel yep. becomes the becomes the big thing. Now we see that type that same type of need for that cross section of skill sets, right? Understand the customer and the industries. You see that on both sides of the fence at times. That, that ability to to kind of multi uh, level layer that approach. I'm curious for public sector. You're talking about, and we talked about time horizon, right? There's there's this mm-hmm. much longer play here. Do you find it's it's easier to find people that have had time in the barrel, but may not necessarily be the most polished sales professionals and have the most polished sales skill set. Or do you find salespeople that may not necessarily have spent enough time uh, in segment, as you say? You know, I find that they can spend a good amount of time in the sales barrel, but I really want to see them time in segment. Time and segment is, is what I found to be the most significant qualifier or, or predictor rather of their success. Okay. Okay. And is that largely because it's such, I mean, relationship plays a part in every type of sale, but in public sector, it seems to play an even more important role because of the volatility uh, and a whole bunch of other reasons. But, but is it because of that ability to understand how it works and then inside that context to build those relationships? It really is. And I'll flip it another way. So when you're making a when, when you're making a commercial sale as a sales rep, you can send an executive gift. You can send, you know, a door opener if you yeah. will. You can send an email directly to their mobile phone. You could send um, you know, you could invite them to a very, you know, specialized luncheon at the Ritz Carlton where only five other executives are going to be. <laughs> and all of that is not permissible inside of the public sector for one reason or another. You know, for example, public sector employees are bound by anti, um, oh, uh, it's um, anti-bribery laws that the maximum gifts they can receive in a given year cannot exceed more than $25. So you can't buy them lunch, can't buy them dinner, can't buy them drinks, right? So you have to find a different way to build a relationship right? Typically within most public sector agencies, they have firewalls that don't allow HTML based emails to go through. Okay. So I'm not sending this really cool spiffy email that has all the bells and whistles. I've got to go straight back to text, right? Okay. All right. And guess what? I'm not going to be able to send an email to your mobile phone because it's, it's FIP certified. And there are certain things that won't be able to go through because in my email signature, I might have a URL to my company and your spam filters inside of the government agency might grab that and kick it out. So there are all these intricacies and characteristics of engagement inside of the public sector that are either bound by law or bound by a need for security or a need for privacy. And the primary way to break through all of that is face-to-face. When you can have a face-to-face engagement and build a relationship with a customer, then that relationship has a significant value in the public sector. And I won't say it's more so than in the commercial sector, but it, it's really important because the ways 
reaching government agencies today and the individuals inside of government agencies is just getting more and more difficult when you're trying to do it from the outside. Understand. And so then, of course, the time in the barrel becomes a time in segment becomes that that critical component. I mean, you can teach I mean, what we do teach companies how to prospect in the private sector using all of the different mediums that are out there. But I mean, you know, you basically just shut down five of the seven ways that we <laughs> try to get a hold of people. I could tell you the story about a client who thought it was a really good idea to send solar powered battery chargers, you know, for, for your little cell phone, right? Right. $15 devices, $20 devices. But think about the circuitry boards behind them. Oh, <laughs> they man. sent a thousand of them <laughs> to, you know, the Social Security Administration. <laughs> <laughs> and the ruckus in the mailroom when they received that level of security components, because everything gets anything, anytime you mail something to a government agency, first and foremost, it goes to their security scanner. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so think about the backlash around that. It's, it's just, it's understanding these cultural norms and these limitations, and then figuring out creatively how to work within them to build the kind of relationship that you need, and frankly, your customer needs. Excellent. Okay. Yeah, totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. So when you look at, you know, we've, we've talked about it a lot, but what, what, what is it, if you could boil it down, what is it about public sector that inspires or motivates you the most? I mean, you're obviously very passionate about it, very accomplished. I'm curious, what is it that gets that adrenaline flowing about the public sector for you? You know, it's going to sound really corny, but it comes down to knowing the work that I'm doing plays a part in changing people's lives and making a difference. The reps that I deal with and the marketing teams that I work with are really touch. They've got their fingers into third rail elements of our national security, of military training, of social security and, and health and welfare systems. And when my clients are able to help agencies implement a, a health care system or, or a welfare system that all of a sudden enables a whole community of less fortunate individuals to be able to tap into their benefits via mobile devices instead of having to go to a brick and mortar, it changes their life. When we're able to, when my clients are able to more effectively sell technology to the military that actually makes a substantial difference in delivering a, a information superiority or decision-making uh, superiority to the battlefield, it means more soldiers come home safely. And that's that's huge for me. When we're when I'm able to help a company understand how their technology can fit within the intelligence community and can deliver an advantage to our intelligence community in the way that they protect our nation, then I know at the end of the day the work that I'm doing ultimately down the chain has a, a real impact. And I, I think about all of that. And for me, that's a big piece of, of that's a big piece that fuels me in doing what I do. And I also know that's what really drives many of, of my clients as well. It's this idea that you're rolling up your sleeves, you're putting your hands deep down into the machine, and you're trying to make a difference. And it's pretty cool for us. And that intrinsic motivation uh, is something that some of the most successful people I've ever had the opportunity to meet and or interview share, right? Mm -hmm. There is there is that intrinsic, uh, it's not just about the dollar, it's not just about the puzzle. It, there is a, there's a deep mm -hmm. intrinsic motivation. So I'm, I'm very excited to hear that when we talk when we look back we've talked about a lot of different uh, different things but i'm i'm curious if there's an upcoming trend or something that you're seeing new in the public sector that uh, you're excited to see play out or something that you're curious how it will it will impact the the segment so to speak 
you know, so let's take a look at the, the administration. <laughs> Currently, <laughs> I, was, I was doing my best not to. I was doing my best. I know you were. <laughs> but here's the really exciting part. So I watched, as you know, I think as we all have, this administration go down its varying paths. And, and I do actually believe they're in a learning pattern right now, <laughs> 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 where it winds up. But I think it's a learning pattern. But what I'm seeing right now is that, honestly, the rules are changing. And I think that that gets me really excited about technology acquisition because it means anytime you've got this level of change in the atmosphere, that it brings about new capabilities. I think one of the things that government agencies and public sector agencies truly struggle with at their core today is acquiring technology in time and in a way that they can put to immediate use. I mean, everybody laughs about the government being this big behemoth bureaucracy. It's the elephant lumbering around in the room. It's what have you. <laughs> but everybody I know who works for government really does want to see change made there is, you know, their hands are as tied as the technology folks who are trying to, to upgrade them. So, and I'll cite you an example. It, it's really interesting. There is, um, within the DOD, there is a specific piece of technology that was used, for, that has been acquired to manage their healthcare records. And over time, we've seen the plight of the, uh, the VA and all of the challenges that the VA has had, right? Well, interestingly enough, the VA, the head of the VA did something I've never seen done before, and that was basically make the decision without going out to bid, hey, we are going to adopt what the DOD has adopted for medical health care records, and that will enable us to do two things. One, communicate electronically with the DOD, which frankly they couldn't before, and that's a little frightening. <laughs> The second, the second piece is though, it's they're take they're looking across the aisle, identifying something that's worked and said, you know what, we are just going to move forward and execute. We're not going to try to reinvent the wheel. I get super excited about that because that's a game changer, not just for government agencies, but for sales teams as well, because it tells the sales rep, if you can build the case, if you can go high enough, then you can help to affect change faster. Well, in that That's specific, in that specific VA example, I mean, I, I actually watched President Trump's uh, speech uh, when they were talking about having been able to accomplish that. And I remember I was actually shocked to think that, that part of the challenge had been that lack of ability to share uh, EMR, you know, electronic medical records between the yeah. different you would just think uh, I made the assumption that that was already in place and had no idea how absolutely complex uh, that that problem had been. But to see them solve that, I, we can completely understand the reward that that brings to the table, but also the excitement because now you've got the ability, I would think, to do a larger scale sales strategy mm -hmm. that could mean even more ROI. Uh, may not change the timeline necessarily, but <laughs> but might get ROI out of it. Right. So, so that, that is taking the handcuffs off a little bit of the sales teams and, and encouraging them to go high, right, and build a lot of value around what they're doing. But the second thing it does that I get really stoked about, too, is you're able to then reference sell in new and meaningful ways. It's the first time I've actually seen at that high level an enterprise reference sale go from one installation, not just to another installation, but if you think about it, the Department of the VA is a civilian agency. They're a federal civilian agency. The DOD is the DOD. And they typically purchase very differently. And in this case, 
You've got a civilian organization who referenced off of a DOD sale and is simply going to copy and print for them. That tells sales reps references do matter and your ability to reference across accounts is going to continue to improve your sales posture. So it's a much more dynamic environment, right? It, especially with all the change mm -hmm. and the change in administration, it gets more dynamic. Do you see the sales reps get excited about that? Or are they, or are they little kind of can't believe it's happening? <laughs> well, you know, it's like every change inside of a sales ecosystem. <laughs> At the same time you're getting excited, you're also kind of going, uh-oh, <laughs> what do I have to <laughs> How do I defend my territory? <laughs> right? oh, yeah. So it, it's that balance between, hey, there's a new way to do things and, Oh crap, there's a new way to do things. <laughs> now I've got to figure out a new defense system associated with that. So I'm, I'm seeing a little bit of gas clutch, but um, I, am, I, I remain really bullish on the public sector. I still think there are big problems to solve. I get really excited about the technology sector's ability to help solve those problems. And when I see technology companies truly partnering with government agencies, really sitting down, and you've, when you've got a rep, who really is invested in an agency, who's driving value along their relationship with the agency and beginning to build this partnership, man, companies ought to get really excited about that. And that's why I go back to time and segment, right? Because then you've got a rep who understands, not only who understands the importance of that relationship, but that relationship has a value to the rep itself. So they're not going to push anything forward that's not going to be a win-win, right? Because they've got their own, individual reputation and credibility as well. And so as a company, and I encourage the companies that I work with, when you see that, get excited, get lined up behind it, because that's when great things happen, when you've got that partnership and that brainstorming element between technology and the public sector. Excellent, excellent. Okay, so let's change direction a little bit. We've got uh, two standard questions towards the end of each interview we like to ask our guests. Uh, well, the first one, you know, as a, as an executive yourself, that that puts you in the target uh, sites sometimes for people mm -hmm. who are looking to sell to you. Uh, so I'm yep. curious, what is it uh, when somebody is trying to to sell to you that you that you don't know, right? It, um, we would call it cold a cold start. What gets your attention? What makes you, um, you know, pay attention to somebody or respond to somebody? Oh, man. You know, I, I'll preface this. I almost want to take CEO out of my title because I become a target <laughs> on LinkedIn. Yep. And I'm telling you, between the LinkedIn, you know, please, you know, please connect with me because I want to sell you something. And, and the emails that I get, some of them are so extreme, it's laughable. And you kind of go, okay, so clearly they were going for humor to break the ice here. However, I don't have time for this. But the ones that do make me take notice, make me take notice in two areas. The first is if I have a reference. So if you're going to use LinkedIn, use it intelligently, figure out who you and I have in common, contact that person and say, do you mind if I reference you in my initial email outreach? Right? So that's, that's kind of tried and true sales 101. A referenced opportunity is a lot better than a cold opportunity. But I'll tell you outside of that, if you deliver to me a crisp, well-targeted value proposition that doesn't force me to read through multiple paragraphs, right, for example, but that clearly connects to what I do and proves to me that you know what I do, you've got at least a 50 to a 60% chance that I'll consider replying and considering <laughs> that's better i mean hey that's better than most right i mean most of the time some people don't even open them up they don't even open the, up the emails yeah. it requires a level of preparation and, and research right you're doing your homework before it, you uh target somebody excellent it, okay 
It does, but it, it's not a tremendous amount either, right? It's it's a baseline level of caring about who you're engaging with, just enough to understand who they are and what their company does. Well, I think that's actually a really good point, right? We spend a lot of time, I spend a lot of time with clients and sales reps working on the fact that, look, you this is a human interaction, right? And so all of the dynamics in, in play in any human interaction that you have, there is a level of respect. There is a level of making sure you are, you're not wasting their time, right? That you are providing value as you do it. All of that is amplified in the sales scenario. So you want to make sure you're doing all that. And it's funny to me how many people just think, well, I'll just play the numbers. I'll send a thousand emails and like 10 people will respond. It's like, okay, but what kind of, you know, what does that say about you? <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, it's no different than what I do with my clients, right? I get an email, whether it's a, a referral email where somebody has introduced me, or I've got, you know, a, a cold call or a relatively cold call that, that's going to go out. I am absolutely going to research everything I can about that company and those people before I pick up the phone. Right. It just, I, I, owe, I, I, that's my commitment to building a, a longstanding relationship. And I, I want them to understand that, that I'm going to provide a level of value right up front by not wasting their time, having to d describe to me who they are and what they do. Right. I'm going to take care of that for them. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a respect thing. It, it's amazing to me. I don't know if people get too focused on their number and forget that at the heart of this, what we're talking about is how do you accelerate human interaction and value exchange? It amazes me how many people just forget about it. And you're right. It doesn't take a lot of time. It really does not. Um, so last question, we ask all of our guests something we call an acceleration insight. And if you had sales marketing or consulting professionals focused on the public sector in front of you, you had the opportunity to give them some advice that you felt like would make them more effective at beating their targets. What would that advice and insight be and why? You know, Chad, I think it goes back to what we started our whole conversation with. And that is, it's not about you right? It, it's about the customer. And from my perspective, each customer has a story. And if you understand the story completely, then you're armed with all of the facts and all of the information you need to effectively drive and manage the sale. And I think we forget that quite a bit of the time. We go in, we ask a couple of questions, and they might be the same couple of questions that we ask every single one of our customers. And so what I would charge public sector reps with doing, and with those, actually sales reps in general with doing, is become the best investigative reporter that you possibly can. Leverage the tools around you to research everything you can about that customer, that agency, the mission that they have, the challenges they have around them. And there are quite a, a lot of tools inside of the public sector and outside of the public sector that you can use. Things like Google, which is fantastic for uh, surfacing information. There's the Freedom of Information Act, which forces agencies to post budgets and org charts and program information and mission information, all available to you on the website. You can go to websites like usaspending.gov and actually find out what competitive technology has been sold to that agency before and how much and when and who the purchasing officer was. So there's there's a plethora of information out there and I would encourage sales professionals and marketing professionals too to do your investigation ahead of time. Really dig in, understand what, what's happening within that agency and within that customer's world so that you know which questions to ask when you're with that customer and then listen really, really listen, you know, learn from my mistake about you know, my gut instinct <laughs> and what I wanted to drive forward and take a step back and really consider what the customer is trying to accomplish. And going again, coming full circle, you can only do that 
when you ask the right questions and you're teed up to listen. So that's what I would do. I would encourage each one of the sales professionals out there to really work on building that story almost before they even go in for the first meeting or the first call. So they've got everything they need to ask the, the right questions and the specific questions that they need to ask. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you for that, Juliana. That's the show for us today, folks. Anybody who uh, came back late or wants to see the blog post, please check us out at b2brevexec.com. Uh, don't hesitate to search for us on iTunes, leave a review. Please, we'd love to see those. Good, bad, or indifferent helps us make sure the show is valuable for you uh, and your friends, family, and coworkers who we encourage you to share the show with. Juliana, I can't thank you enough for the time today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, thank you, Chad, so much. The pleasure has been all mine. Excellent. Well, to all our listeners and to you, Juliana, until we talk again next time, good selling, and we wish everybody nothing but the best. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.